good. All right. If you would head to your seats, that would be wonderful. We've, we've just finished a sermon series uh, where we uh, examine the fact that we are finite creatures. We are limited creatures, and, and because of that, we don't always get what God is doing or even what he wants us to do. Because he's so much bigger, so much wiser than us, his ways just seem difficult sometimes to, to understand and figure out. Well, this next series that we're jumping into is actually the exact opposite extreme of what we just talked about. Um, imagine for a minute that you were in Israel during the time of Jesus, and you're sitting and listening to the very Jesus himself, right? Um, as he's teaching, as he's answering questions, um, he's physically just right there in front of you in a way that you could ask him any question you want to ask him, right? Any question. I mean, are you imagining this moment with Jesus in front of you? You're not seeing me, but seeing him. What would you ask him? You ever thought about that? What would you ask Jesus if he was right there in front of you? Well, one of those moments comes straight out of um, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. If you want to turn with me to Mark 12, um, another person in history actually has that same kind of moment. He had Jesus right in front of him, and he was able to ask Jesus a very specific question um, in that moment of accessibility to the Son of God, right? And Jesus answered him. And amazingly enough, not with a question, <laughs> like Jesus loves to do, right? Um, this time Jesus actually answers this guy very clearly. What was the question? Read with me Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came, and he heard, heard them debating Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important? So you can kind of see the scene here. We have this teacher of the law in front of Jesus. I mean, what is he, what is he a teacher of? It's God's law, right? He's an expert. He, he's um, been studying the law of God found in Scripture probably his whole life, starting as a, a young boy. And in those days, this was an honored occupation to know the law of God. And they, as a people, had scoured through the scriptures for every law <laughs> that people could possibly follow, right? In fact, they had developed their own laws um, to describe how to follow the laws that God had given, right? We, we've talked about this before. Yet with all these laws stacked on top of one another, um, sometimes it gets to be difficult to kind of keep track of them all, right? Which one is, is most important? Which one is of greater importance as you follow them? And sometimes it's difficult to process through all that's there and figure out what to do, right? You only have 24 hours in a day. What am I going to focus on first? What's the priority? Um, they just had so many laws, right? Which one takes precedence over the others? Which of the commandments is most important? And Jesus, he answers legendarily, right? And I can imagine the scene. It, it says that they've been debating, and Jesus has, had a, has given a good answer, and it seems like they're having this going back and forth, um, challenging each other. And then this guy, I can, I can kind of imagine, he kind of just yelled out a question. And the room becomes quiet because, oh, that was a good question. Which of the commandments is most important? 
And again, Jesus doesn't do his usual here. He doesn't ask a question to answer a question like he seems to do all the time, right? But what was his answer? Verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. (laughs) What does Jesus tell them? We've read this passage many times, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And that is the commandments that are, there are no greater commandments than these two, right? What did this teacher of the law think of Jesus' answer? Well, as you follow through here in verse 32, he, we see that he actually agrees with Jesus. It says, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying what God is, that God is one and there is no, no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. I mean, think about that. The teacher of the teacher of the law agreed with Jesus. <laughs> that says a lot, doesn't it? Write that one up in the history books. Well, they did, right? Even Jesus' opponents agreed with him on something, right? Why did he why did they he agree with Jesus? Because Jesus brilliant, brilliantly has summarized the whole of the Ten Commandments. The commandments that were passed down from Moses on Mount Sinai, when when God incredibly, he wrote (laughs) what he wanted people to do in stone. You see, there are times when God is very clear on what he expects from us, right? The Ten Commandments. I mean, he doesn't leave us guessing all the time, but hold on. Didn't Jesus come to get rid of the law? I mean, is it true that the Ten Commandments are even valid or relevant for us today? I mean, those are great questions, right? And this is what we're going to be working through this summer. Um, During the summer, I like to take a section of the Old Testament and kind of work through it and really kind of examine it through the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of Christ. And this will be an interesting topic for this summer, looking at the Ten Commandments, or as Exodus 34, when they actually state the name of the Ten Commandments, literally translated, it comes out the Ten Words, um, according to Scripture. It's interesting. And the truth is, you can break the Ten Commandments down, as Jesus does, into two sections. The first four commandments teach us how we ought to live in relation to God. As Jesus said, we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we see in Mark 12. And then the last six commandments can be summarized by we should love our neighbor. Again, as Jesus answers. But we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Um, We don't want to cover all Ten Commandments this morning. Uh, I want to start with the question, where did the Ten Commandments come from? What was their context? I mean, that's the first question I usually like to answer when I'm looking at a scripture is, you know, what, what, is, what surrounds the Ten Commandments? How do we find out some insights about the context of the Ten Commandments? Well, we find the Ten Commandments way back in the book of Exodus. And really, if you haven't read Exodus recently, I'd really encourage you as we travel through the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks to, to get back in it and read the stories. Exodus is just an amazing, amazing uh, story. 
But the book of Exodus starts with the Israelites. They are enslaved um, in, in Egypt by the Egyptians, and they'd been slaves. They had been slaves for 400 years. Think about that. That's longer than the United States has been around, right? 400 years they've been slaves. That's a long time. In fact, they've been slaves so long in Egypt that Israel had gone from a family with 12 sons to truly being so numerous that the land was filled with them. Exodus chapter 1 tells us that. Verse 6, it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And it's also been so long that the Egyptian leaders and probably many of the Israelites have completely forgotten about Joseph and even his God. Verse 8, it says, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And if you want to refresh your, your minds on the story of Joseph that, that, that predates this story, um, that's also a really good story. We're going to get into that one at some point. Um, but that story starts in Genesis 37. If you want to start there and, and read through the next few chapters to, to remember what it was about Joseph that they forgot. This new king, though, not knowing anything about Joseph, was threatened by the Israelites because of their numbers, right? So what does he do in verse 11? He puts slave masters over the Israelites, and they oppress them with forced labor. And yet we see in verse 12 that the Israelites still continue to grow, still continue to spread. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me. As we look at different stories in the Bible, you see even when hard things are happening, God is still at work. God is still blessing. God is still doing things. In, in spite of them even forgetting about God, praise be to God, he's actually willing to, to invest in them anyway. God has not forgotten about them. He blesses them and increases their numbers. And God even uses what the Pharaoh hopes for evil. You remember verse 15? He decided to kill off all the Hebrew baby boys to try to slow down the, the population growth of these people. Um, to according to, to Exodus chapter 2, God ends up putting one of those baby boys that was supposed to be killed, where did he put him? Right into Pharaoh's household. So God was already at work. And what was going to happen to save the Israelites even before the Israelites were even thinking about it, right? Baby Moses has been born. Another great story that you could look through, right? Do you believe that God can, can be at work before we even notice that he's at work? Is that a true statement? I mean, it seems, I know I see it in Scripture, but what, do we notice that? Do we ever get to a point in life that's like, whoa, I didn't even know God was already at work there. It's really interesting to think about it. And to, and you look at this story, to make a long story short, the Israelites, they finally cry out for help for God, but he's already got pieces in place, right? Verse 24 says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a really incredible statement about God, that he was concerned about them, that he was interested in them, 
even though they had forgotten about him up to this point, right? So here we have God. He's already got the, a piece in place of how he's going to save them, even before they, they even cry out to him. And I'm giving them a, I'm giving them a little bit of uh, benefit of the doubt, thinking that their groaning was actually towards God. Can we groan and not make it towards God? Oh, yeah, right? But assuming that they were actually groaning towards God, I mean, even if, if they weren't groaning towards God, that was even more incredible, right? Here he is doing these things without them actually reaching out to him. What does God do next? At the point in the story when the Israelites finally cry out to God, Moses is already 40 years old, and he's living in the middle of nowhere, tending sheep, <laughs> And yes, we know that God had already prepared Moses for the task. I mean, that's, that's just incredible to think about. Years before the Israelites were ready to be saved, here was God already at work. Unbeknownst to, Mo, unbeknownst to, to Moses, of course, right? He doesn't even know what God's doing. He thinks he's out in the middle of nowhere for, for no particular reason. He thinks he's been forgotten. No, God is still just waiting for the Israelites to say, Hey, help. I mean, do we ever get into those places? So God calls out to Moses in Exodus 6, Exodus 3, at the burning bush. God sends Moses in 10 plagues to Egypt, rescues his people from slavery to Egypt, crossing through the parted Red Sea in Exodus 14, giving the Israelites this dramatic victory that there is no way they could have done any of it without God. Right? <laughs> and so we roll into Exodus 20 where we discover the Ten Commandments. It's been three months since the exodus from Egypt has taken place. And in all honesty, these last three months have not been good for the Israelites. Right? If you know the story, even though God has been so gracious to them, they've done nothing but whine and complain. Right? And wish for great, the great days of slavery. Oh, to be enslaved again, oh, it would be so great. I am so tired of this freedom. I mean, isn't it crazy? That's how they show their gratitude. And I'd probably say, you know what? Humanity really hasn't changed a whole lot, have we? <laughs> and yet again, we see this amazingly gracious God. He hasn't changed either who has faithfully been leading the Israelites through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He's been providing food and water for them. And God has led them to the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. <laughs> At the beginning of Exodus 19, God calls Moses to the top of the mountain where God explains to Moses what he wants to do. He wants to make a covenant with the people of Israel. He wanted them to be his people, Right? So if you've been following the story at all, you, God's been blessing them all the way through. This isn't the beginning of the relationship, right? So many ways throughout the history of the, their family. All the way through, God has been blessing these people. He's already done so much for them. God tells them in Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses goes to the, the people of, uh, and he shares with them what God has said. And what is their response? Verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. <laughs> so Moses brought that information back to the Lord, and you kind of see this back and forth, you know, Moses going up to the mountain and then back down, and the people um, just communicating back and forth, trying to put together this covenant that God, Jehovah, would be their God, and he would be their people. And within that, establishing the relationship, came the commandments, the Ten Commandments, how God expected his people to live. That's the context. This unbelievably gracious and good God who's been amazing to these people all the way along, blessing them over and over and over again, and they've forgotten more and more blessings than he only mentions the latest blessing, right? <laughs> the Ten Commandments are really a constitution of sorts, really. And this is where we run into the first commandment, which we look at this morning, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And again, if we're thinking through Jesus in Mark 12, this first commandment is really at the heart of the first part of Jesus' response, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we do this by putting him first. They go together. The first commandment and what, what Jesus has said, right? But if you look at Exodus 20, you'll notice that this, this verse 3 is actually not the beginning of the Ten Commandments. There's, there's a preamble in Exodus 20 describing God's part of the relationship to them. So let's just kind of begin a couple of verses before. Verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words. I think that's an important part because it's not man making this up. This is God speaking, right? Then we go on to verse 2, and it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Again, what is, what is God saying about our relationship with him, with their relationship with him as he starts into this covenant. First of all, we see him calling himself your God. Their God, right? The relationship is not a new relationship. They already know each other. They already know who he is. Their God. How do they know him? Well, he's the God who brought them out of slavery. And that's not even mentioning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I mean, all the way down the line, right? That's just the latest. That's how he describes himself. It all starts with God and his grace, right? They already know that he is good. They already know that he has blessed them beyond blessings, right? They already know all this stuff. But we also know something they don't. If they didn't know their history, we've been reading, if we started in Genesis all the way into Exodus, that God has been good for years, right? His story with his people doesn't just start in Egypt. There's a long pattern of goodness and faithfulness. People of God, let's not miss this first part 
I know I've repeated that about 20 times. God's already done all these great things, right? This God that we worship has a continued track record for thousands of years of being faithful and good. And by the time we encountered him, his amazing grace has already been at work for generations and generations and generations. This is not just some unknown God that we're talking about, is it? Before God shares anything that he expects from the people of Israel, or from us for that matter, he starts with, I am not only your God, I am your Redeemer. I am your Savior. I've been good to you. I have been faithful to you, right? That's what he's saying. Before you ever do anything for me, remember this. I brought you out of slavery. Do we see that? And God isn't saying this in order to obligate them to, to the rest of the commandments, right? This is who he is. This is what he does. Their relationship is not tied to the law or even the performance of the law. He, he's already rescued them. That's the start of the relationship, right? Do you see that? The Israelites are asked to obey the commandments not in order to somehow d obtain divine favor. They already have it. Amen? God is so good. God asked them to obey just in a grateful response to his unmatched grace, his love for them, that he's already showed them, right? Do you see that? Isn't that an amazing beginning to the Ten Commandments? We usually think about, well, what do we have to do? Well, it starts with him, doesn't it? His grace. Our God is gracious. He understands that it isn't simply enough to tell us to do something and we go do it. We can't get anything done without him. He's usually at work in things that we can't even see. He's already doing it. We need his help always. We can't even respond without his help. And he has provided his help in a powerfully motivating way by rescuing us. In fact, he is the rescuing God. That's who he is. The Ten Commandments begin with an important reminder of what God has done. What God has done. Indeed, Exodus 20, verse 2, is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is the same God we see in Jesus. I mean, just like the Israelites were enslaved, we were enslaved. Maybe not to the Egyptians, maybe to our own passions and desires, right? The powers of the world. I mean, no nothing was going to save us from that. Not even the law could save us. Nothing could set us free. You can hear Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus speaking here, Ephesians 2, verse 3. It's almost as if he's talking to the, to the Israelites. All of us also lived among them at one, point, one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were deserving of wrath, but did God give it to us? <laughs> Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And that's the beginning of the, the relationship, right? God, who is rich in mercy, entered into our world, took on our burden, set us free. He rescued us from the slavery of sin, just as he rescued the Jews from their slavery to the Egyptians. And knowing who God is, I can also bet that those commandments that he gives us are for our best interest. Because we already know who he is, right? He's a good and gracious and faithful God. Why else would he give us commandments? I mean, wouldn't you say that? This gracious and loving God, he, he, I would imagine he's saying, you know what, I've done this for you. I've demonstrated my love and faithfulness to you. So you know what? You can trust me. <laughs> you can trust me with your very lives. I have a track record. Look at my track record. Look at what I've done for you, right? So here's what I want in return. I don't want you to put any gods before me. Let me be first in your life. I mean, I have set you free. So please, don't go and enslave yourselves again. Can you hear God say that? Why would you go out and enslave yourself to something or someone else? I'm the only good God. I'm the only faithful one. Please, get this in your head. You need to follow me. It's in your best interest to follow me. You think that's true? As an act of mercy and grace, we are told by God to have no other God but him. Putting God first means that we let God be God, right? And he knows what's best for us. We can trust him. Now, what's interesting here, I think, <laughs> is he doesn't say there is no other gods but me. That's not what he says. He says, you shall have no other God but me. So does that actually mean that there are other gods? Hmm. Now, don't forget the Israelites were actually coming out of Egypt, who were very polytheistic, right? They had all sorts of different gods. And in a lot of ways, I would say we are in the same boat. We have a lot of gods. Sometimes it's easy to forget, lose sight of the simple fact that so many good things in our lives become ultimate things, don't they? We can turn our relationships even into ultimate things. Little G's that become capital G gods, right? But we can do that with all sorts of things. We're really good at it, honestly. We can do the same things with our careers, <laughs> with our pleasures, with, with our sports, <laughs> with our money. I mean, the list just goes on and on. We can just make just about anything into a god, can't we? We're really, really good at it. I think we're blessed that way. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a blessing, no. Secondly, when we put God first, we need to realize that all we're saying is to say yes to God before we say yes to anything else. That's all it is. Just say yes to God before you say yes to anything else. And that includes ourselves. Isn't it? I think it's interesting. I like looking at old historical statements because it's just crazy that you can go back a thousand years and read a statement from Christians and they would, they're so just like it was written yesterday. 
There's one, the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism. It's a Protestant confessional statement put together in 1563. But amazingly, <laughs> even though it's 500 years old, nothing has changed. It explains God so well. It says that God requires that, that I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. I mean, that's a pretty good statement to follow, isn't it? Isn't it interesting when we can look back and see how God hasn't changed one bit over thousands of years, right? And we can also see that our need for him hasn't changed either. Thousands of years, right? The pathway to avoid putting other gods first is to love him. It's to love him. Jesus understood this. That's, that's why he framed his answer in the way he did. Our hearts have to be in this. Our hearts have to lead us in this. This is not an obedience thing. This has got to be a heart thing. The question is, how can you love God enough to put him first? How can you love God enough to put him first? This is why the track record is so important. Who is this God who is seeking us out, who's asking us to follow him. Who is he? Is he worth loving? Is he worth giving our hearts to? I mean, that's even why we come together for worship, right? We're coming together to remember and celebrate who our God is. Singing songs, reading scripture about who our God is. We're reminding ourselves what he has done for us. We know this God. And we have to put our hearts into this. We've got to be willing to love this God, right? To truly follow God and put him first. You and I, we have to see God for what he has done. And similar to the Israelites, and they're remembering the crossing of the Red Sea and God saving them from slavery to Egypt, we have a story of salvation as well, don't we? The best way to truly see God and what he's done for us today is to look at the cross and what Jesus has done for us. We looked at scripture, Colossians 1.15, a few weeks back. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Yes, it's Jesus on the cross, but scripture tells us that God demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus. He is the redeeming, saving God, right? For God so loved the world. I mean, if you ever wonder if God loves you, look at Jesus on the cross, right? If you ever wonder if God wants to be in relationship with you, look at what Jesus went through to have that relationship, to, to be together with you, right? If you ever wondered if you're accepted, hear the words of Jesus on the cross in John 19, verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, Jesus on the cross, he says, it's finished. What does he say? It's finished. <laughs> Which means nothing more needs to be done. Which means you little G-gods out there, <laughs> you don't have to work for your salvation. He's already done it, right? If you're wondering how to respond to a loving and gracious God like this, what did Jesus say? Luke 9, then he said to them, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. I mean, what does that even mean? You ever think about that? I mean, we've been talking about this first command. God, don't have any other God before me. I mean, is he, you would think that following Jesus would have something to do with following a God, right? Is there a God that, we're, that Jesus is alluding to that we should avoid? Who do we need to deny? Oh. What is Jesus asking us to do? Deny yourself. Humble yourself. What are we humbling ourselves from? Being our own saviors. Isn't it? Who's the savior in the story? <laughs> is it him or is it us? Recognize that there is a gracious God out there that has already done the work to save us. Right? Trust in God to be God. And he wants you to follow him. When you truly see God in Christ, then you will want to follow him by putting him first in your life. And this isn't new, is it? It's what God's been doing and saying since the very beginning. And track through the Old Testament. It's the very same stuff. Saving us, calling us into a relationship with him. You see it? You shall have no other gods before me. Even this is an offer of grace. Even this is a means of grace, right? As we practice this, we'll grow in our relationship with God and experience more and more of his grace as we put the saving part of our lives into his hands, right? I mean, do you know this God? Have you experienced his grace? That's a real question. The answer is yes. You know who this God is, and you know what his grace is about. You've experienced it. You just, maybe you haven't acknowledged it, but God's been at work all the way through. Just think back. Even in our reading this morning, God has been working in your life long before you had a knowledge of his work. He's been blessing you so many different ways. Just acknowledge his goodness. I mean, is it finally time to receive his salvation in your life? Which includes choosing to follow him. Inviting him to be a part of your life and inviting him to be your God, right? Your savior, your king. That's what the first commandment's about. <laughs> it's not a hard thing. This is a good and gracious God. Why wouldn't we want him to be God and king of our life? He's the God who saves. God who redeems. I'd like to close our time this morning with communion. And communion is really meant be a covenant between God and his people. He gives of himself, that's what communion is about, <laughs> and we choose to receive his grace. Christ provides for us on the cross, and our natural response is to remember the sacrifice that he's done for us. Receive the grace of God in our lives and give thanks, right? And maybe you've never received Jesus as your Savior before today. This is your opportunity even as we take communion. 
Even if you don't all the, know all the details of what it even means to ask Jesus into your life, right? You do know that he's good. You do know that he's faithful. You do know that he's worthy of your worship. He is a worthy king. And truth be told, he's actually the one doing the saving, not you. So you really don't even have to know all that much about saving, right? Would you receive him today as your king, as your savior?